The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Grimaldi in for Leslie Marshall, as I uh, have been fortunate to join you each Wednesday from 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern. I'll be doing that today as well. And then you will hear Leslie uh, following this hour uh, starting at 4 p.m. Eastern. In the meantime, I uh, have the pleasure of being joined by a good friend of the show, a voice that you've heard on here for years now, who is uh, our go-to security expert. Um, Unfortunately, we do tend to have uh, to hear from Colonel Cedric Layton after um, some of the toughest uh, news stories in the world, but that's why we have him on, because he's got a lot of experience in dealing um, with these types of events. Um, Colonel Cedric Layton is the founder and president of Cedric Layton Associates, a strategic risk and leadership consultancy serving global communities and organizations. He founded the company in 2010 after serving in the United States Air Force for 26 years as an intelligence officer and attaining the rank of colonel. He has held assignments all around the world and at every level of command to include tactical deployed units, the U.S. Special Operations Command, national agencies, as well as the joint staff in the Pentagon. And this uh, past November, he joined CNN as a military analyst. Colonel Layton, welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. Good to hear from you. It's good to hear from you, too, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So I want to get right into it. Obviously, we're going to be talking about the uh, terrorist attacks in Brussels uh, yesterday. Um, What's the latest on the suspect who's wanted for his involvement uh, in the Brussels airport attack? I know um, it's been found out that two of the men uh, died in suicide bombings, but the third man uh, appeared to have left a bomb that did not detonate. And then additionally, I was just reading some uh, different intelligence uh, analysts uh, online, some reports where it looked like there was, I don't know if it was that man or a, a different man had been captured, uh, they were saying, but then about seven or eight hours ago, they said they're closing in on someone. I don't know if that's the same man or someone else unrelated. Yeah, so there's a lot of confusion. And, you know, as they say in the business, uh, first reports are almost always wrong. And I think that's basically what we have here. So as best as we can sort it out right now, there are two brothers who uh, were uh, basically um, involved in in this. One of them is uh, named Ibrahim al-Bakrawi, a 29-year-old with a Belgian uh, passport, uh, originally from Morocco, had an extensive criminal record, and uh, so he was put in jail for, um, you know, doing things like uh, firing a a weapon at uh, police officers unrelated to to terrorist activity, other criminal acts. And he was... um, released early from from prison uh, a while back and so he was on uh, you know on basically a supervised probation type situation and then in addition to Ibrahim you have his younger brother who's named Khalid al-Bakrawi so one of them I uh, was the, the Ibrahim was the one that was one of the ones that was responsible for uh, the bombing at the airport then you have Khalid who was responsible according to uh, the best information that we have for the bombing in the subway. The other person 
that you had in the airport was a, a person named Najim uh, Najim Lakrauni, and uh, Lakrauni was a 24-year-old. He was. Uh, at first thought to have been on the loose, but now it seems that uh, the best reports and DNA analysis indicates that he was one of the ones that blew himself up at the Paris, at the, excuse me, at the Brussels airport. So there were two, uh, Najim Lakraoui, and uh, then you have um, Ibrahim Al-Bakruni, who were the ones that blew themselves up at the airport. The person who is on the loose right now is been uh, is unidentified, remains unidentified officially uh, from uh, you know as far as the Belgian police are concerned, and uh, most of the reports out there are concerned. So there was uh, you know at first we thought that one of them, in fact, was on the loose. One of these identified people was on the loose, but it looks like that is not the case. So right now, the main suspect, and I know they said that there's other suspects that they're looking for. Obviously, this wasn't just these men uh, who were involved. You know, we'll obviously keep our audience up to date on that, but it it remains at large. Um, You know, moving back to the attacks themselves, how, you know, and looking at the optics of this, how were these attacks able to happen in in Brussels? And was there a failure in, in security? I mean, doesn't there have to be when something like this happens, or is that not always the case? Well, yes, there is always a failure in security when there's an attack and there was an effort to stop the attack. So what it appears to be at this point in time is that the Belgian authorities had some idea that uh, something was going to happen, but they didn't know exactly what. So they were uh, working various leads, and one of those leads led to an apartment in a part of Brussels that uh, in which uh, the Paris attacker uh, was, Abdel Salam, was actually uh, holed up, and they didn't know that he was there, but they ended up capturing him there. And that then started a cascading effect of uh, different things as the police were questioning him, and they ended up actually uh, finding uh, several other uh, possible leads, but it wasn't enough to stop the attacks uh, on the airport or on the subway. Uh, what it looks like to me is that the, this was a situation where these attacks uh, were planned, uh, but they may not have been attacks that were actually perpetrated on targets that they wanted to wanted to use. They may or may not have been. We don't know yet. Uh, but the other part of this is is that these attacks uh, were definitely moved forward on the calendar. They, I, I suspect that they were probably going to go after something uh, you know, more close, uh, closely related to the Easter holiday in terms of a date. And uh, the fact that they moved these uh, attacks forward indicates to me that what they were doing is responding to the police pressure that they were under. Uh, so in some ways, there's a, you know, a, it's a bad term to use as success, uh, but uh, you know, there's definitely pressure put upon by the police. But it wasn't good enough, and it didn't have the right kind. They didn't have the right kind of intelligence uh, to nab this plot uh, and stop this plot from happening. And that's the the prime difficulty. There are a lot of intelligence issues here. Uh, most people would call those intelligence failures. And the fact that there are these intelligence failures indicates that there's a long way to go when it comes to actually putting together a coherent anti-terrorism posture for the Europeans in general, but specifically for the Belgians in this case. I was actually listening to the BBC um, on the way in. They do a, the, the World News, I think, does a pretty good job um, of reporting on a lot of this. And I was listening to a woman named Julia Paravicini, who's a Politico Europe reporter. Um, and I guess she's stationed in Brussels. And she was talking about how 
Um, you know, she was basically trying to get at how much the intelligence, uh, you know, the intelligence in Brussels knew about this and knew about these suspects rather. And, you know, uh, what I was hearing is that the authorities there were indicating that they knew that the the brothers had criminal background, but that they weren't aware about radicalization, but she's saying there's some conflicts as to whether or not the older brother that, uh, outside nations did know, that this man um, had been radicalized. So it's, it sounds like, you know, there's some finger pointing going on, which you, you never want to see if there's something like this. You do want to get to the bottom of it. But I've also heard complaints that, um, you know, yesterday I was listening, for instance, the, you know, police force, you know, in New York City or in Paris, you know, usually have one, whereas, you know, in in Brussels, I, I think I heard something, and I don't know, they obviously have different jobs, but there was something like six of them. So information sharing, obviously, you know, can be a problem we've seen in the United States after the September 11th attacks, you know, a lot of people saying that we need to do a better job with our intelligence communities being open with one another. Um, are you seeing some, some problems? there in brussels uh that is somewhat similar to as as far as like you know where people were upset in the united states that the different organizations weren't doing a good job communicating with one another or is these just accusations being kind of thrown that don't have a lot of weight behind them no actually mark there there is a, a a lot of substance behind these accusations because the Belgians are basically dealing with a, uh, a an archaic bureaucracy that is trying to do its job in a in a digital age. You know, where there's a lot of data and a lot of data that uh, you know is is available uh, for you know for examination, but it also has to be uh, looked at from the purpose from the from the vantage point of uh, you know data that can actually be used and data that is accurate. Uh, so there are significant issues there, and they're they're basically uh, I'll I'll call it this. You know, like a lot of bureaucracies around the world. They're not, definitely not alone in this. They're uh, putting themselves into a situation with, with a 19th century mindset in a 21st century problem. And that uh, that is a big disadvantage. And what I mean by that is that uh, in this era of big data and the ability to analyze different things uh, that are out there, it becomes very, very difficult uh, for an intelligence agency to operate if they don't have the tools to analyze all the possible data points that they get. And the fact that they didn't have those uh, those tools or didn't take advantage of uh, what they could have had, uh, you know, makes it very difficult for them to really properly do their job. And even uh, Groups like this or people like this with a criminal background can uh, run circles around the police, uh, at least for some time, because they're much more agile, they're much more uh, flexible in the way they execute things. So these accusations are definitely on track. You know, what it really means is that all intelligence agencies around the world need to look at the idea of, uh, you know, how much data do they use? What kind of data do they use? How accurate is the data? How valid is the data? and then be able to turn that data into actionable intelligence, intelligence that you can you know, conduct a police raid on, intelligence that you can use for a military operation. And that's the kind of thing uh, that sometimes intelligence agencies get into the intel for intel's sake. In other words, they're just collecting intelligence for the sake of collecting that intelligence, not for a particular purpose in mind. And that is a very dangerous position to be in. And that's where we, you can get uh, caught flat-footed in, in cases like this. And obviously, you know, you hate to see it when you see uh, this loss of life, you know, 31 people, I believe, over almost 250 uh, injured. I'm going to read you a quote as we go to break, Colonel Layton, and 
I want our audience to keep in mind you just detailed some intelligence problems. Pair that with this. Um, I'm going to read a portion of a CNN article on these attacks and get the colonel's opinion after the break. Uh, quote, the Belgians have been sitting on a ticking time bomb, end quote, a U.S. counterterrorism official said. Given all those who have traveled from the small European nation to Syria and Iraq to join ISIS, then possibly come back home, end quote. Um, I'm going to ask the colonel if, if that's a known problem in Belgium or just an assumption that is people leaving Belgium to join ISIS and then returning to Belgium to plan terror attacks. So we're going to get the colonel's opinion on that when we return from break. I do see we have uh, a caller we'll get on as well. Uh, in the final segment, we're also going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the reaction here uh, in the United States. If you'd like to join myself and Colonel Layton, the number to do so is 8886-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. This is Mark Grimaldi in for Leslie Marshall. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Grimaldi with Colonel Cedric Layton. Uh, if you'd like to check out the Colonel's work and some of his thoughts and appearances, you can go to CedricLayton.com. Uh, that's C-E-D-R-I-C-L-E-I-G-H-T-O-N. You can also follow him on Twitter like I do. That's just at Cedric Layton. Um, before the break, I had posed a question to the Colonel about um, whether or not it's considered a big problem in Belgium where you have citizens going over to Syria and Iraq to train with ISIS and then return. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that, Colonel. Sure, Mark. Well, the interesting thing about that is that Belgium actually has the highest rate per capita of, of any non-Muslim country in the world of ISIS fighters. So they have about, per one million people, about 45 or so fighters show, from Belgium show up uh, in either Iraq or Syria fighting for ISIS. So they are one of the areas uh, adjusted for population that has uh, one of the most uh, one of the largest numbers, one of the highest per capita rates of foreign fighter participation. And that is a significant problem. So it's not something that is, uh, you know, just a, an assumption. It is an actual fact that Belgium uh, has been a huge supplier of foreign fighters uh, to ISIS and its, uh, and its affiliates. And if you pair that with the other problems we just discussed, you could see why Unfortunately, it's problematic. I, I do want to get to um, some of the American response. Some of the biggest news, unfortunately, was some of the most outrageous comments. Um, you had Donald Trump arguing that he would authorize waterboarding and, quote, unquote, far worse forms of torture uh, against suspected terrorists as president. After first broadening existing laws banning torture, um, he said we have to change our laws and we have to be able to fight on an almost equal basis uh, yesterday, arguing in favor of torture and pointing to ISIS's far more brutal treatment of its prisoners. Uh, Trump has also advocated killing the families of terrorists and banning all Muslims uh, from entering the U.S. I, I want to unpack some of that. First, regarding waterboarding and torture, um, from a lot of what I've read, and you would know better than I would, haven't intelligence experts determined that torture is an ineffective way to gain accurate and valuable information from suspects, I mean, including waterboarding? Well, basically, yes, uh, that, that's correct. Uh, the U.S. military, uh, for example, has a 
field manual that specifically outlines uh, when and where uh, you can use certain interrogation techniques. Waterboarding is not among them, but waterboarding, the only agency that used waterboarding right after 9-11 was the CIA, and that was based on a presidential finding that uh, was actually briefed to Congress. Now, uh, that in most people, you know, nowadays at least consider waterboarding, waterboarding to be torture. Uh, but, uh, you know, whether it is or is not, uh, the, the big issue is, you know, is torture effective? And the answer generally is no. I, what you find is that when people are backed into a corner, backed, uh, you know, backed up against the wall, they don't uh, tend to cooperate with you, even if it's really the only way out or at least the easy way out. Uh, what they will do is they'll put up their resistance. They will tell you false information to avoid the torture. Uh, they will do all kinds of things that prevent you from getting at the truth. And generally speaking, uh, those kinds of coercive techniques are not conducive to uh, us finding out what is really going on. And it's uh, very hard to use those kinds of techniques and actually get accurate representation of what's going on in a terrorist cell, for example. I want to get to a, a caller uh, real quick. Reggie, go ahead. I know you wanted to talk about some of the uh, responses here uh, in the United States to the terror attacks in uh, Brussels. You're on with uh, Colonel Layton. This is uh, Reggie in Georgia. Go ahead, Reggie. Yeah, happy hump day to you, Mark, and to your guest. Uh, why is it that all these radical right-wing conservative Republicans are blaming Barack Obama for what happened in Brussels when he was over there in Cuba with Che Guevara? I think he's talking about, you know, you heard a lot of people upset that the president didn't cut his trip short um, and that he still attended events like, for instance, a baseball game um, with the leader of Cuba. You know, I know, you know, there's been some opinions on both sides of that. You know, generally you see political attacks, you know, regardless. Mm -hmm. But what, what did you think of that? Well, you know, it's it's uh, kind of hard here. You've planned a trip for a long, uh, long amount of time, a long period of time, and it's a you know significant diplomatic event. Uh, what you do in that case? So the president is caught between a rock and a hard place, and he too, I know, realizes that there's an, an optics issue with this. Uh, you know, would I have done it that way? Maybe not. Uh, but uh, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, uh, you know, when you're Dealing with uh, these kinds of things, uh, the president is also uh, has moved on from Cuba to Argentina, uh, where he is actually working on some counterterrorism issues with the Argentinian government. Uh, so you have to weigh weigh the benefits. It might not look good, might not look look pretty or look proper in in many cases. But what the administration is going to do is they're going to be sending Secretary of State Kerry uh, to Brussels, uh, and I believe he'll get there on Friday. Uh, so that's you know, not quite like sending the president of the United States, but it's definitely a, a high-level official, uh, you know, to Belgium. And so uh, the idea that we have here uh, that, uh, you know, we can only Colonel, I'm sorry. Unfortunately, we're running out of time, but I want to thank you for coming on very much. Please check out Cedric, uh, CedricLayton.com and check him out on Twitter at CedricLayton.